0: This is the Mormon Women Project at www.mormonwomen.com. Hi, this is Meredith Nelson interviewing today Dr. Emily Bates. Emily suffered severe migraines from a young age, leading her to pursue a career in science in order to study the genetic causes of the condition. She's now an associate professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and runs a lab studying the molecular mechanisms of birth defects. Emily has led groundbreaking discoveries in the field of genetics, overcoming dyslexia, cultural pressures, and self-doubt along the way. She feels that God has led her from the beginning down this path. Emily sees science and faith as compatible methods of seeking truth and relies on both as she runs her lab, partners with her husband to raise their daughter, and works to understand the nature of God and of the human body. I don't know if layman's terms exist for what you do, but can you explain what your current work entails?
1: Yeah, so right now I study how the brain forms and how the face forms. So birth defects that include brain malformations or facial abnormalities like cleft palate or cleft lip, a smaller jaw, and then there's some other features that can be abnormal and we use human mutations that are identified in people with these birth defects to try and uncover how things happen normally and then what goes wrong when they happen wrong and so usually what that entails is identifying a, a mutation that exists in uh, humans who have this, this these kinds of birth defects and then putting it into a mouse or a fly or cells and trying to understand what's going wrong there and then usually that'll help us to understand something about how it
0: happens when it happens
1: correctly as well
0: how do you change a fly's gene? <laughs> I, a fly's I just, genome? What do you do? Um, so they have
1: mostly the same genes that we have, just fewer of them. So we can usually, um, and then all of the genomes have been sequenced for uh, flies, mice, and humans. And so that is to say in general, right? So not all of the human population is sequenced, but we know what a general human po- a human genome looks like as far as what genes are in there. And then we know that for a mouse, and we know that for a fly. And so we you, we can find a similar gene in a, a fly, for example, and we can do different kind of techniques to to edit that. One of the things that you can do in fruit flies is just inject an egg or eggs with DNA that's that's encoding what you want it to, and then that can get taken up into the fly's genome. And then they just pass it down into their progeny. Wow. Um, so that that's um and usually what we'll do is put some kind of marker to let us know that the that it got incorporated into the fly. Um, something that's visible, like an eye color marker or something like that. Mm. And the the process is fairly similar for mice, but you have to implant them then into the, you have to implant the embryos into the uterus of a mouse. Um, similar to in vitro fertilization um, happens for humans, you know, um, it's mm. kind of a similar process for mice. Um and I don't do either of those myself. We design the DNA. Um but we send it to a company that
0: does that. <laughs> does yeah. actually does the injections. I'm um, I'm trying to picture a syringe small enough to inject a fruit fly egg. <laughs> I'm yeah, the, sure they yeah, have
1: them. you
0: Yeah. <laughs> well they're
1: like little Yeah, they're they are tiny. And I've used them before. I used to do that when I worked with a different system. People also use um, a type of worm to do genetics research, and I used to inject the the gonads, basically where the eggs are made, um, of the worms to put the DNA in there. So I've used the same the same injection system that they use for flies, Um, but I just don't. I never bought one. I just send it out to this company that
0: does it (laughs) and then we do the experiments with them once we have them that is crazy stuff that's amazing so i'm interested in why why birth defects what led you down that path Hmm. so this is not
1: where i thought i would end up so i guess it's luck in some ways i started out um, in high school Wanting to become a scientist and I wanted to do research on how migraines happen on and using genetics because I suffered from migraines really severely and frequently and so um, when I started at the University of Utah, I applied to a Women in Science program called the ACCESS program uh, and they picked 20 female students who had interest and aptitude in science and then gave us a a summer-long course that included cu- computer science chemistry physics math uh, molecular biology and then you also got to enroll in a lab a research lab and start doing research as soon as you started school at uh, college and so I got into a genetics lab because I wanted to study. The genetics of migraine eventually, but no one was studying that at the time and so the lab that I got into was studying um, how birth defects happen using fruit flies and I loved the research and I really um, had a great mentor. her name was anthea Letzu she's still at the University of Utah and I really loved doing research and I presented my research as an undergraduate and I really gained a lot of confidence from that mentor i grew up in a family where my older brother was really a genius and i was dyslexic i am dyslexic i should say and so when you're a little kid you kind of define smartness by by reading and since i was slow at learning to read and my brother was really fast and amazing that really defined me and I I always knew I was a hard worker, but whether I had aptitude was always kind of in question for me. And so when I got into this lab and I was successful in this lab and my mentor really valued my contribution, at the end of college, she told me that I should apply to all of these really fancy fellowships and also that I should apply to the top graduate schools in the nation. And I kind of thought she was a little bit crazy, but I still took her advice and applied to a bunch of schools. So some that she had recommended for me, Harvard Graduate School, Harvard Medical School, Berkeley, uh, UCSF, UCSD. So basically, yeah, top tier schools. And then I also applied to schools that I thought were more realistic for me, but it turned in, it turned out I got into all of them, and actually they pay your way. So that was kind of an amazing
0: mm-hmm. thing
1: for me. i and and I wish I had taken that as a sign that I belonged, but I still had a lot of confidence issues that I think did cripple me in graduate school a little bit. But I still worked hard, and I started doing neurological. Uh, studies there so I started working on Huntington's disease which is a neurodegenerative disorder that is completely genetically inherited and so that got me a little bit closer to my goal and I studied uh, ion channels also which is a type of pore in cells that regulates the electrical properties of brain cells called neurons so I started working on how how the brain works in and doesn't work in graduate school and then in my postdoctoral work i really did get to follow my long-term dream which was to study migraines and the genetic cause of migraines and i joined the lab of Louis patachek at the university of california san francisco ucsf it's also a top medical school in the country and research facility and there, I was introduced to someone else's project, which was a syndrome that's very, very rare, but it's caused by mutations in these ion channels. And it causes cardiac arrhythmia, so that means the heart beats abnormally. And then also, people get paralyzed occasionally um, for like half a day or something like that. And then um, they also have cognitive deficits, they don't, uh, they don't do well in school. And they have a whole syndrome of birth defects that includes cleft palate or um, a thin or cleft upper lip, a smaller jaw, wide-set eyes, low-set ears, and digit abnormalities like fusion of two of their digits together or um, abnormal curvature of the pinky, and all of their digits are too short, shorter than normal, I should say so because I'd studied development and birth defects as an undergraduate, I knew developmental signaling really well, like I'd studied it for four years, and I knew that there wasn't anything in any developmental textbook that I'd read or any article that I'd read that had said that ion channels that usually work in your brain or your muscle influence the way your body forms, and so um in utero, and so this seemed like a big mystery to me that was completely unsolved, and it also seemed like I was in a really good position to answer how this happens because I'd studied how the brain works and also how development works, and I'd spent a significant amount of time doing both, and so. When I started my career as a professor at Brigham Young University, I started two projects, really, in my lab. And one of them was following up on this um, genetic causes of migraines. And then the other was studying how these ion channels that regulate electrical activity in your brain and your heart and your muscle could be influencing how your palate develops as a person, you know, when you're in utero because that's not something that normally people think of as having electrical activity. But we do think of our heart having electrical activity and our brain having electrical activity. So um, that started the whole project of studying birth defects. And what we found was that these ion channels regulated how developmental signals are sent from one cell to another to tell that cell what to become and that was a really big discovery and um, really exciting for me so and that so that project kind of took off and then the migraine project kind of fizzled a little bit and so when i moved to the university of colorado I was hired by the medical school to do the birth defect type of research. And so the migraine stuff um, kind of has been put on the back burner for now. A part of that also has to do with funding. Migraines affect three times more women than men. Um, they affect 30% of the female population and only five to 6% of men. And so it's just not a priority in the funding, I think, because of that, because mostly men are in charge (laughs) of where the money goes. (laughs) That's interesting. That's because of who we vote into office. (laughs) If you don't vote into office, someone who looks like you, you likely won't get represented. Wow! (laughs) So So you
0: heard that ladies who are listening, send Emily Bates some money for migraine. research. <laughs> <laughs> oh, or just vote for people vote, who yeah. are women. <laughs> vote for people who will do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Wow. Exactly. What an amazing so, journey. Um, yeah, but I actually, I
1: love the birth defects research and I really, you know, I loved my migraine project also, but I really love understanding these rare disorders that are never going to get funded or examined in a pharmaceutical company because they're too rare and there's not any money in it for them. So the only way the type of research that I do can be funded is by the government. So I do have to say thank you to everyone um, who pays taxes because that's what funds all the research into rare disorders. And if you are a mother of a child who does happen to have Some of these rare birth defects, you know, you really do want um, research to go into preventing them and maybe potentially finding a way to cure them. And then a lot of the stuff that we study can also be used for regeneration potentially. So, like if you break a bone, how do you repair it better and faster and Hmm. um, stuff like that?
0: So, did your family? encourage you in the sciences is that was that part of your family background
1: yes um my father is a math professor and he was always very very encouraging of science and math and educational pursuits i would say and my mother has a master's in nursing she is a nurse nurse practitioner a pediatric nurse practitioner And so both of them have a strong science background, and both of them were very invested in my education along with the education of my siblings. And um, I actually credit my mother with most of my success because if you can't read, you can't do really anything in science either. And she spent hours and hours and hours reading with me and, and reading every other sentence and then reading other every other page so that the stories would move fast enough that it, I didn't get completely bored. And she was really strict with, it was a requirement for me to practice reading every day until eventually I could read, I think, pretty much average pace now. And um, that's because of my exceptional mother. <laughs> so, mm. Um, it's genetic, by the way. My father's also dyslexic, and so is my younger brother. Oh, interesting. And, um, yeah, but we're all three professors, so you can get over that <laughs> with, with hard work. Yeah. yeah.
0: You talked about your the lack of confidence that you felt going into these um, Ivy League schools, and, and I wonder how much our society or even our church's messaging about girls and science played into that for you?
1: Yeah, that's hard to parse apart because um, my upbringing was really intertwined with that, right? with church. So I can't really distinguish what came from church and what came from my family dynamic and just Following a genius in my family order, you know, Um, but I also think it was really great for me to have this older brother who was so smart, because I figured I had to be, I had to be as successful as he was, and that just meant I had to work harder. So if he had been maybe not so invested in reading and learning and had a great curiosity and did really well in school, I may not have done well, in school either, because it was hard for me. So I'm really grateful that I followed my brother, even though it probably did (laughs) contribute a little bit to thinking he's the smart one, I'm the one that works hard, (laughs) Um, but I'm not smart, was kind of the underlying feeling that I had. Mm -hmm. Um, So I can't, I do know that I noticed when all of my friends switched from being interested in science and math and maybe becoming doctors to absolutely not wanting to go into that and it was around puberty. It was around when they started getting interested in boys and I think learning that what boys wanted in our church culture was a stay-at-home wife with Children, and I do recognize that that didn't happen for me until much later. But I did have those thoughts um, once I was in graduate school, and at that point, I really did recognize that the selection process in our <laughs> in our church favored people with different educational goals than I had.
0: Um, Can you share an example of an experience you had with that? Sure. Um, Let's see. There were a lot.
1: (laughs) Some of them would be kind of superficial, like just, you know, having a conversation with someone that seemed like they were really interested in me. And then I would, would say that I... Was teaching because at the point that point I was teaching um, undergraduates at the at Harvard, and they would still kind of keep interest. And then when I when they would ask what grade, and I would be like, well, undergraduate at Harvard, and then in what subject, and it's molecular biology, and they would just like drop it,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Like that was kind of like a very typical thing. And then other people would directly quote or sometimes even physically bring and point to the proclamation on the family and say, women are supposed to be the nurturers and the men are supposed to be the providers. So are you willing to give up your career?
0: Because you you can't be a molecular biologist and a nurturer. That was the kind of the yeah, that was the what they were saying. Yeah.
1: yeah, that was what they were saying. And so, um, like, I actually have really bad feelings towards the proclamation on the family just because of so many people pointing it to it, saying that I was not a worthy or good woman because I had a career goal, and it probably didn't help that it was science and not elementary education, for example, that was, is more accepted or nursing, I think is more accepted, but that happened a lot of times. Yeah. Mm. A lot of times for me. And I think it might also be my particular generation like that proclamation came out basically when people my peers were starting to find spouses find partners and so maybe it was emphasized in a way in my particular age group that may not have been for the later time point or the earlier time point but I know that it affected me (laughs) Um, but it all turned out okay I mean I'm happy now and I'm I'm happy I'm with the person that I'm with. And uh, he's always been proud of my career and encouraging of my career. And so I wouldn't have it any other way. But it was painful at the time to Mm -hmm. hear people saying that what I was doing was not faithful, I guess, or good. When it was actually really, really hard. And I felt like it was called of God. (laughs) I felt like God wanted me to do what I was doing and it was actually mentioned in my patriarchal blessing most of my patriarchal blessing is about my career and very little of it that is about having a family so i feel like it came from god in the first place and i'm following what he wanted for me
0: um but that just didn't fit with the church culture so you ended up marrying a man who's not a member of the church um right And we we recently published a series on mixed-faith marriage, so I'm interested in that story, if you'd like to tell it, how you you came to that decision to marry him. Um, He was definitely
1: the best match for me that I'd ever dated. And part of that was that he was funny and intelligent, and we had great conversations, and... I enjoyed his company so much, and part of it was that it was really the first time I'd felt like the person I was dating was impressed and proud of what I was doing in my education and in my career. That was so empowering to me, and it felt Like I could be me and I could be proud of what I had worked so hard to do. And I really had not ever had that in dating. So maybe part of it was that too, that I felt like I could be myself and be proud of myself. And it was really hard. Like getting a PhD is really hard. And I love, love, love what I do now, but it's a hard road. And so to have other people kind of telling you, well, you shouldn't be doing it anyway and it's bad of you to have those aspirations or it's prideful Mm. uh, definitely doesn't feel good. And the opposite of that is just like an amazing thing. And it felt like a team for the first time. It felt like I fit with him. And then, also, he took care of me in ways that other, that, in just really good ways. Um, he cooked for me, and he took me to the airport when I went to j- job interviews, and and I just fell in love with him. <laughs> so, um, the idea of not being with him was was not one I liked to think about, We talked a lot before we got before we decided to get married about about how that would work. I don't think he ever imagined marrying a Mormon. And and so, yeah, we had to kind of talk about what that meant. And he'd actually been raised by parents or his mother was Catholic and raised him going to Catholic church and his father wasn't. And so. He didn't go to church with them. And so he already had a good model of how that could work. And he thought it was good to be raised with religion. And so he was happy to let me raise any potential children in um, going to church with me. And then he just requested that he also be respected and his, his um, viewpoints be respected and that we don't try to push that on him. But yeah, he's always been very supportive. We still pray um, over meals, and now we have a daughter, and um, so she knows that's part of the habit. It's p- part of our family culture. But yeah, just I, I go to
0: church with her, and
1: and he doesn't go with me most of the time.
0: So now that you have a, a family, how How has that impacted your work? How do you, I think a a lot the question that a lot of people have who value family but are interested in a career is, is how do you find that balance? And I'm interested in what, what works for you and your husband. So I think anyone who has children will tell you that the children become your top
1: priority of everything. And so before you have the children, that priority isn't there (laughs) because they're Mm -hmm. not there. So I worked a lot harder, I think, before we had children, a daughter. I put a lot more time in, um, to work. And I put even more time in to work before I was married. Because that relationship also needs nurturing, nurturing and, and time. So I think the hard work that I put in earlier helped to get me where I am. And because now I run my own lab, and i do have a department chair and a and a boss basically but they don't track my time and they don't keep track of when i'm at work and when i'm at home um i basically followed the advice of Ruth Bader Ginsburg <laughs> and that is that she worked um i think it was from 9 to 4 and then when she came she came home at 4 and was completely concentrated on being a mother until her children went to bed. And then she would work again when they went to bed. And so I try and follow that model now. Um, I leave work a little tiny bit before four usually to get to her little school. And then I take her home and we play and we get dinner ready together and have dinner and read books and then do our bedtime routine usually there's a play a game of chase and hide and seek in there yeah and then when she goes to bed she goes to bed around seven and then i usually work after that again for a while until i go to bed (laughs) (laughs) she's right now an only child and i had her when i was 40 so i don't know if there will be another child And if I was at home with her all the time, she would be so spoiled rotten (laughs) because she'd have all of my attention all the time. She'd never need to learn to share. And I think it would be really hard for me to not spoil her. So, this is
0: actually a good scenario for her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so people often talk about science and religion in mutually exclusive terms, like they're opposed to each other. And you are a scientist of faith. And so I'd like to hear what synthesis you see between the two. I see them both as seeking
1: truth. And so to me, they're not at all in conflict with each other in any way. But that also means that I don't just accept anything really on either front. So if the truth from one source is conflicting with another source, then I will try and figure out which one I think is right and or how they could work together. I do think that they're both seeking truth and they are valuable complementary methods. When I was in either high school or junior high school, I was living in Provo, Utah, and I had a Sunday school teacher say that I could not believe in God and also believe in evolution. And I had just learned about evolution in school and and the origins of life, um, the different theories of origins of life. And they made a lot of sense. I felt like I'd seen evidence of evolution in a lot of different things that I was learning about. and. Yeah, it was a beautiful theory in my mind. Um, so I was really conflicted because here this this guy is telling me that I can't believe in God, and I did believe in God, and believe in this theory that I also thought was a great theory, and it made a lot of sense, and it was very rational. And all of the signs seemed to be pointing in that direction, and it seemed like, well, why would God make everything fit together so perfectly in this theory? You know, that just didn't make sense to me because I think of God as a loving God. The God I believe in is a loving God who wants our happiness and he's not out to deceive us. So, yeah, it just didn't make any sense that these things would be conflicting. And I had, a it was actually like keeping me up at night, this conflict because of what the Sunday school teacher said. And I remember kind of like almost kind of dozing off to sleep and I'd been praying about, like, please help me to find what's wrong with this theory so that I can be at peace with my beliefs. <laughs> and I was kind of drifting off to sleep, and I had this big impression that I should read Genesis, like the beginning of the Bible. So I read it, and it was amazing how closely it followed evolution. To me so it was it felt like a personal revelation that was saying actually these aren't in conflict at all actually if people had just read the bible more closely they would have come up with it earlier they didn't need darwin (laughs) you know because it's saying that life didn't just appear it's saying that there was an order to it and it didn't happen all at once but that it happened in order Mm -hmm. right and in the beginning, there was this basic soup over the world. Well, that is what the origin of life in science terms is, that it was all just kind of a a soup. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then after that, there was the, you know, it just, it just fit perfectly together. And so at that point, I really did feel like it was a revelation from God that there didn't need to be any conflict. And that basically that Sunday school teacher was not right you could believe in both and you should follow truth no matter what the source you know whether you do it you learn it by physical senses or spiritual senses Mm -hmm. Um, they'll lead to the same place if you're in tune with both and if you put the effort in to study and learn and
0: practice does Revelation play a role in your current work? Hmm, I don't
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. This is a this is a million dollar question because <laughs> it's really hard. I've I've wondered this, and I've asked it in so many Sunday school um, classes. How do you really distinguish your own thoughts from the spirit? Uh huh. It's hard. It's really hard. And I thought I knew uh, when I was a teenager. And then since then, you know, I've had more complicated experiences where I felt like I got an answer from God and then maybe it was just what I wanted. You know, I just, so now I don't really know. I mean, I kind of think that all good things, are inspired in some way from God. And so probably probably in a lot of ways, they're coming from God, the good ideas and things. But I definitely needed to work to get there, right? So there was effort on my part. And then maybe God meets you with that. I don't know. Hmm. I don't really know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I mean, (laughs) certainly I was inspired to follow this career path by my patriarchal blessing, which I think that comes from God.
0: Do you feel that you've learned anything about God as you've studied the human body and disease and genetics? Hmm. So I, I really believe strongly that only good comes from God
1: and nothing bad comes from God. And so when things go wrong, they just go wrong because of how mistakes happen in biology and i don't think that god intervenes very much in that and that's important because there's a lot of suffering in the world because of disease and sometimes people attribute that to god and they'll say what did i do to deserve this or why doesn't god change this or take it away And I think it can really strain the relationship with God. Because if you're begging him to take away something that's giving you pain or giving someone you love pain and it doesn't change, then you may feel abandoned or that he doesn't love you or that he's not there. And just from studying what I study, like. These mistakes happen all the time. It's actually a miracle that anyone <laughs> is born whole, you know, mm-hmm. without major health problems because it's just so many things have to come together at the right time at the right place and so much hap- has to happen correctly. Like millions and millions of reactions happen have to happen precisely correctly to get someone who isn't um got a a birth defect for example and then on top of that neurological disorders and cancers and all sorts of things right and these are all biological processes and i think seeing how, how how it works with science you can see how god could just have set it in motion and then be there to inspire and comfort and give you strength to get through the challenges of life without physically intervening in how life happens. And that's the view of God that I have, that you can be as good a person as you can possibly be, but that doesn't mean that you're going to escape challenges in your health or real struggles with your own body. and um, and I don't really think God intervenes in that very often, or maybe even at all, I'm not sure. But He does always give you strength to get through things and give you you know He can send you peace and comfort, and through that you can become a better person even without that challenge going away. Have you experienced that personally? Yeah, yeah, I have. Um, So with my migraines that kind of fueled my career, um, they were really, really painful and I would lose my vision with them. So about uh, 45 minutes before the pain would start, I would start to lose my vision starting in the periphery and then it would um, move inward. And then, you know, 45 minutes later, I'd get this just intense head pain, and I still couldn't see, and I would vomit uncontrollably, and it basically knocked out an entire day. And when I was in high school, those could be as frequent as once or twice a week, and um, particularly in my senior year of high school. And like, I used time really well you know i never was like a a time waster and so it felt really unfair to me that i would lose days when some people just gave away days by watching tv all day you know it seemed like i was using my time really well and i was following the word of wisdom and i was taking care of my body the very best i knew how and I was trying to be a good person, and I was following the commandments as best I could, and I was reading the Book of Mormon. You know, I was just doing everything I could and praying for these to be taken away, and they were never taken away. And like, I could have studied really hard for an exam, and then I'd get in there, and the exam would start disappearing, and it would be like, well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is just not, it just was really hard. And it was hard socially, too. You know, I could never be relied on to do anything because I didn't know if I'd have the next day. And like I remember throwing up in public a lot of times. That's terribly embarrassing. So yeah, I mean, I really struggled and asked God for a long time to take them away. And after a while, I just kind of I actually read it in the novel, a novel as conversation that was basically what I just recounted that was kind of saying God will give you strength to get through things, but doesn't always take them away. And then just in learning about biology and seeing how it works, you know, it it seems like it would kind of be breaking his own rules to intervene on that level. (laughs) So maybe it's better to just learn from the challenges that you have because of the imperfection of biology. And learn to have compassion and learn to be a better person through them instead of wishing them away and wishing God would take them away.
0: Emily, is there anything else that you'd like to share? I'm not off the top of my head. It's a really fun
1: career. <laughs> I guess <laughs> that's something. I guess I would like to share that. Um, so the reason science is so amazing is as a career is that sometimes you're the first in the entire world to know something. And like that discovery process is like being on a mountaintop. It is so exciting. There's almost nothing else like it in the world. Like I can remember some of the discoveries, you know, we thought something might be the case. We designed an experiment to figure that out. And when we saw that it really was what we thought it was, I remember, like, literally jumping up and down, <laughs> and like, <laughs> kind of like, like just dancing in the lab because it was just so cool. And, um, and like, that's happened multiple times. So I think a lot of times people think of science as, like, your class that you go to at school and you're memorizing a bunch of things and then you spit them back and science is actually the exact opposite of that it is learning what is not known (laughs) what no one knows yet and sometimes it actually overturns what you learned in your textbook in your high school biology class or your college biology class even or even what you thought you interpreted from earlier data you can it can get totally overturned because you learn more and as you learn more you can add a new interpretation to something. So I think the the excitement of science is something that I would love for people to know, um, that it's not anything like memorization. It's really, um, it's like continually learning and continually searching for truth. And when you find it, it's just the most exciting experience.
0: If you enjoy this podcast and the hundreds of interviews with modern Mormon women in our online library, please share with your friends and consider making a tax-deductible donation at www.mormonwomen.com to help us fund interview transcription and website support.